Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Barry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. It's the future belongs to creators. I'm Barrett Brooks. This is Nathan Barry. I already did this on the intro to the audio version, but for all of our live people, you don't get the pleasure of that when you're live. We're back finally with an actual content episode. I haven't been here for a content episode in three weeks or something. You did a solo cast. I did. But we're going to do real content today. Not that Q&A is not real content, but it's just like you don't know what to expect. You get what you get out of it. And sometimes I think it's pretty good. Sometimes it depends on the quality of the questions, which are always really, really high. Of course, today we're covering the billion dollar blog. It's such an eye-popping title, which I love. Nathan wrote a blog post recently called The Billion Dollar Blog or something like that. And we're going to run through just kind of where the idea came from, what it means as a creator, maybe who's just getting started, what it means as a creator who might have been in, in this thing for a long time, and how you can leverage a personal brand and content to turn it into something much more valuable over time. So kind of creating financial leverage. Might even get into a little bit of Nathan's backstory and why making money and learning how it works has been a major part of his path in life. So so before we get into all that, though, Nathan, how are you doing? Uh, I would say I'm yellow today. Did not have the most restful weekend. Saturday, we like did all the things. And by that, I mean, took Oliver to a soccer game and visited grandparents and like did stuff around the house. And then Sunday, Hillary got a migraine, I think because of the smoke. And so then that was what we did. <laughs> we stayed inside. We watched two movies. We cleaned the house, you know. <laughs> Got food delivered. I don't know. Super exciting. It was kind of one of those things yeah, where you had plans and then you're like, we're just going to survive today instead. Because my go-to would be like, okay, it's me and three boys who have tons of energy and we have no plans. Like, let's go outside. Let's go to the park. And we didn't get Portland quality air, but we got to like 200 on the index, you know, so the smoke set in and it wasn't so good. So I'm actually, work actually feels like a little bit of a break today. So, you know, that's how I'm at. Definitely yellow, but excited to talk about this. I, uh, I love the topic and have had a lot of good, fun questions. So what about you? Yeah, I don't know. Somewhere in that yellow red range, there comes a point when you layer enough things on top of each other where it's just like, I've reached my threshold for processing. Please let up, please. I know weather updates are are annoying as a podcast listener, but honestly, we are going through the worst air quality in the world right now. And I know cities like Beijing and Mumbai and others have this on a regular basis, which is its own problem. However, we do not have this on a regular basis. And uh, we were literally off the charts bad in terms of air quality. Like there was an, not a measure for how bad it was yesterday. And local air quality and our indoor air quality, I have a filter and a measure in here, is higher than what is typically safe to be present in right. for extended periods of time. So it's just stressful. It's like, and I can't even do anything. It's the whole West Coast. Right. It's about as far East as we would be willing to drive. And so it's like, well, I just hope that there are no long-term implications. You know, we're just going to try and get through this, basically. It might rain today or tomorrow, which would be a huge gift. Yeah, that would be amazing. It's one of those things, because I think as you pointed out, it's not just this one thing. It's not just that however many of the largest fires on record in the state of Oregon and, and separately the state of California are currently burning at this very moment, but it, it's just everything else. Yeah. Layered on top of it. I've been calling it the pandemic inferno, obviously, alongside one of the greatest social movements of all time in support of the black community and against racism and police violence. So 
Anyways, we're going to get through it, Nathan. We are going to get through it. Convert Kit's going to be better for it, I hope. We're all going to be better for it. But uh, in the meantime, whew, mental health is a real, it's a real challenge to maintain the philosophy of the Stoics at the moment. <laughs> so I think our message to everyone tuning in right now would be, you're not alone. There's a lot going on right now. It affects us just like it affects you and everyone else. And so as you're feeling those things, notice it, journal, kind of the same tools as always. And it gets a little more than a little tiring when you're like really leaning into, you know, all of your, your tools and the emotional and stress management toolkit, but we're right there with you. Yeah. My two cents on that is be thankful for the things that sometimes you don't think you should be thankful for, like blue skies yeah. and fresh air. And try and focus on what you can control. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. We're talking billion dollar blogs today. This is a compelling idea. But um, I'd love to know, Nathan, what was the thing that first sparked the idea for this blog post that you wrote? Yeah, so I was noticing this disconnect between or sort of sort of a ceiling on what I saw people being able to generate from an audience as far as revenue and everything else. And they, and they were getting incredible results, right? Coming in, building an audience and getting to $50,000, $100,000 a year in revenue. And then some would scale from there and, and hit you know a million dollars. And then on the other hand, you see these incredible brands that were out there that were building you know hundreds of millions or, or billions of dollars in revenue. And what stood out to me is that there seemed to be a gap. No one was closing this gap. And so in the information products and courses and all of that, where you're getting all this traction from an audience, there just weren't any at this large scale. And I was looking to a few examples of like, okay, we've got courses over here. So we've got me selling my eBooks on design. And then we have lynda.com, which is the massive course platform. And there wasn't something in the middle. And so I, then I really set out to figure what is the gap? Who are people that have bridged this, that have built an audience and had this initial success and then leveraged it to make something far bigger? And the reason that was so compelling to me is it's effectively what we're trying to do with ConvertKit. I've said, okay, we had an audience early on. You know, I, I, I built an email list. I got that going. I started to reach the ceiling of what the revenue could be from there. And I really used that audience to launch ConvertKit. And then it was like, okay, now who are the people who have done that? And what lessons can we learn from them? Yeah. So in a way, I kind of look at this almost as an extension of your Ladders of Wealth Creation blog post that yes. you wrote last year, which was kind of a little bit of a riff or a play on another post that we had read on progressing from a full-time job into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And the way you can go from having one full-time employer to progressively having more and more leverage on your time to earn an income. And this is kind of like the ultimate form of that. How do you create the most leverage on your time invested into a given idea as possible? obviously, or maybe not obviously, but following kind of our journeys of starting with a blog or a YouTube channel or a podcast or whatever it might be that very heavily relies on your personal brand, your impact on it, and progressively detaches your personal brand from the thing that you're selling so that uh, number one, brand always matters, right? but it's not attached to your name so much so that you could remove yourself at some point in the future if you wanted to. Okay, so there's so much we can get into here, but let's give like a, an abridged version of why earning money and methods for earning money has been such a kind of passion project for you or a learning project for you on the side for so many years. Yeah, I think uh, growing up, we didn't have money. My dad ran a Christian bookstore. Mortgage payments and food and all of that came from donations. And so kind of being in that ministry, there wasn't very much money. And I was always curious about, okay, how do some people have money and some don't? 
why do some jobs pay more than others? And so I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I do this? And actually, when I started going to college, I was like, I'm just here to get a job or to learn enough so I can get a job that will make me good income. And then somewhere in there, I came across Jason Freed talking about making money as a skill, just like playing the drums or any other musical instrument or whatever else. And it's something that you should practice. And so I was like, okay, well, if it's a skill, then there have to be fundamentals to it. Like if we're going to sit down and, and play the guitar, we're going to be playing scales. We're going to be doing all these things. What are these fundamental parts that we can practice rather than just like telling someone go out and start a business? That'd be like, I don't know, just pick up a guitar and play. And so then I started trying to dive into what are all of these parts? You know, and that we've done an episode on leverage before, you know, the types of leverage, what are these different steps? And that's really the ladders of wealth creation. And then exactly as you talked about, the ladders of wealth creation post focuses on audience, and being audience being a way to bridge these gaps. This next post is really about brand and leveraging that audience into a full brand. And so I do think of it as maybe the final step on that ladder. And it's targeted at people who have already had a substantial level of success and are now looking to scale it beyond that. But I think there's a lot of lessons that you know all creators can learn from it. Yeah, totally. If you ever heard of Jason Free, Jason's the founder, co-founder of a company called Basecamp. They make project management software. They used to make a couple other tools that they retired, but now they've gotten into branching out into new things again. They just created an email product called Hey. A lot of the audience on this show has probably heard of it, but I bet a lot of the creator market hasn't. So just in case that's news, but um, we'll drop his post on, on getting good at making money, which was from Inc. Magazine in 2011. Yeah. And one of the things I love about it is, and you hear this a lot, you know, for an athlete, for example, an NBA player, there are concrete skills that they can practice. They can practice ball handling. They can practice three-point shooting. They can practice free throws. They can practice getting to the rim and making their layups. It's, it's very clear the component skills that add up to being a great NBA player. It's sometimes not as clear in business. You know, what are the skill? What are the component skills that make up being a great COO? Woo! Man, we might, it might take eight hours to go through that and figure out what the component skills are. And some of that is because there's so many. But as a creator, there are some component skills. And certainly turning inspiration into money is maybe one of the clearest ways you could put it is one of them. And understanding how you go from an idea to a dollar. You know, you've always seen this like little meme basically on the internet of step one idea, step two, question mark, step three, profit. Yep. The thing is, you have to figure out what those skills are in step two in order to get there and what you can be practicing on an ongoing basis so that you get good at it. So, you know, there's like a certain kind of thinking you need to both be able to do and want to do when it comes to thinking about your business in this way. So if you had to kind of describe the person that you wrote this for or the kind of goals that that person might have, who does this matter for? The exact person or archetype that I had in mind was someone who's been building an audience for a while, let's say let's say five years, and they've already picked up significant traction. So maybe that's 25,000 email subscribers. Maybe that's two or $300,000 a year in revenue. And they're, maybe it's several millions of dollars a year in revenue. And they're looking going, okay, wow, I pulled off everything that I wanted to. I built this audience to the size that I wanted. Maybe I've got a small team of say two to five people working on it, all of this, and then wondering what's next. There's a lot of people who say like, oh man, this is everything that I ever wanted. I now have the perfect work-life balance. I've got the perfect time to work on creativity. And this is exactly what I want. And this post is written to the people who say, whoa, what else am I capable of? You know, and there's sort of this spark and this idea to take it to the next level. Because that's the question that I have. What else am I capable of? How far can I push this? And so it's like, okay, here's my research. You know, this is what I've learned. The other thing is I worked on this post for a long time. 
And you know this because I came back to you for help on it multiple times. And I ultimately had to just go like, okay, I have to publish it and get it out there and then feed on the community to refine the principles and rules in it. But in short, the post is written for people who have a level of success now and are looking to take it to the next level. Okay. So a lot of the people listening to this show are probably at earlier stages of their journey. Mm -hmm. Not everyone. And obviously we have a lot of our friends tune in from time to time. And Austin Mann was here on Friday. He's got a really successful business across a number of different areas, but a lot of people are beginners. So from a beginner standpoint or someone who's just getting started, maybe they're just starting to earn revenue. Why does this topic matter? Like how would you, how does this fit into their journey as a creator? Yeah. So there's two things. One, I would say the audience is absolutely key. And that's the theme of this show. Pretty much it's the theme of our company. It's almost our, I don't know if it's our life's work. It's certainly this phase of our our Mm -hmm. lives of like convincing creators to build an audience and just being there to witness the success that comes from it. And I think a lot of people will say like, well, sure, audience matters now. But if you were to build a real company or something like that, does audience really matter? Does audience matter for Ford? I don't know. And so this is me trying to make the point that audience matters all the way through and audience is the launching pad for this. And then the other one is sort of this, if it's the very early stages of a creator that I want to plant the seed, but if they're at that point where they have significant traction and are looking to go to the next level, then I want to help make this shift of at some point it goes from audience being the most important thing to brand being the most important thing. And if you can know in advance that that shift is coming, doesn't mean you have to have the perfect brand when you launch your blog on day one, but you need to realize that if I'm going to scale this further, brand really, really matters. Then I think that can plant the seed or or help catalyze this, this shift that is going to be crucial. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so I think for those kind of like long-term visionary types, uh, I think this is especially relevant. People who are able to see the future very clearly and then be comfortable with knowing that step one has to happen before step 100. My coach, Andy, talks about this in terms of contextualizing the current moment that you're in and understanding that we kind of, some of our friends jokingly say that I'm going to run for public office one day. It may or may not be a joke. We'll find out. I may not have the stomach for it, but I know even if that is going to be a thing that I do someday, that that doesn't mean I'm on the wrong path now. It just means that this chapter of my career has a role to play towards this longer term end, if that's something that I want to be a part of. And so it's kind of the same type deal where you're understanding that if you're starting a blog today, that that is not out of alignment with creating a big, valuable brand later. It actually might be a step on the path. Right. So one of the things I want to hit on before we get further into this and you share some of the stories is like some of the more academic types, maybe will be like, ah, survivorship bias. That's what we're doing here. We're evaluating the survivors and gleaning lessons from them when luck was probably the biggest factor. So Listen, yes, you're totally right. Luck is a major factor in some of this and your timing, your topic, your industry, your presence, your brand, like, yes, you totally have to get a little bit lucky with the alignment of all of these things. And I think there is still value in studying the survivors. There's a bunch of people who had these dreams that didn't make it, but a bunch of people did. And I think evaluating that and looking at it and then controlling as much as you can control along the path is still valuable. So that being said, Nathan, what are maybe one or two of the most inspiring stories that you found when you were digging in? I actually, a story came to mind. I don't think it's a particularly inspiring story, but I think it illustrates that point that you're talking about. Let's take two people who got to roughly the same level and then have income on wildly different levels because of some of these principles that they implemented. So one of the principles is to sell products, not attention. 
That's something we found over and over again. And so if we were to take, I'm going to go to the Kardashians in this case, right? They have captured so much attention and maybe they're all kind of on that same level. However much luck got them into that. But the wealthiest of all of them is Kylie Jenner, who started Kylie Cosmetics. I think she had the least amount of attention and fame out of you know all of her siblings. And what's interesting is because either through more luck or through intention and business brilliance, she made the pivot and channeled that attention into a products company rather than continuing to sell more attention through sponsorships or things like that. And then everyone was on Forbes and was arguing about whether or not she was actually a billionaire. And it came down to like, is she worth 900 million or a billion dollars? And I was like, guys, I think she want like she's <laughs> she's good. We don't need to argue about this anymore. We can just glean some of those principles. So that was one uh, example that kind of sparked this initially where I went, wait, what's the difference between these two? Because you even have members of the same family, the same reach and everything. And then getting into another example, one of my favorites is actually Jenny Doan, who she and her husband, I think she was in her early 60s when this happened, when... They were facing bankruptcy and living in, in California, and they actually moved out to Hamilton, Missouri. And her kids set her up with a sewing machine and and said like, okay, mom, on the side, you can like do sewing projects for people and all of that. That didn't really get much traction. So they said, mom, maybe if you do a little YouTube channel with tutorials, then we can sell some fabric and that kind of thing. That got a little bit of traction. And then she ended up doing these tutorials and, and just imagine this by that time, you know, a mid 60 year old woman creating these great tutorials on quilting and those started to get traction. And so she scaled that to today it's 680,000 YouTube subscribers. And so you'd think like, wow, that's gotta be an amazing business. But the crazy thing is that she actually built the Missouri Star Quilt Company out of that, which is selling all these products. They use that attention. Instead of just selling the attention, they channeled the products in a business. And they've turned the town of Hamilton, Missouri into what's called the Disneyland of quilting. And they own literally half the town, employ over 400 people and generate over 40 million a year in revenue. And that was just wild, like finding these examples because you're like, well, of course, the Kardashians could do that. And like, there's got to be so much luck involved there. But then you go to someone who, you know, the 65 year old grandmother turned YouTuber and you're like, wow, that's pretty damn impressive. Yeah, totally. There's a bunch of these good stories in the post, actually. One that that kind of makes the counterpoint that I wanted to share. I was on this conversation the other day. There's this new audio social app called Clubhouse that's kind of still in beta. There was a group of people talking about creators and specifically creators moving from music and kind of the traditional models of earning revenue there from labels and things like that into being independent creators. And then how some platforms are almost re- inventing the music model of labels. So thinking Spotify, basically, by signing talent onto contracts. And so a lot of people probably read or may not have read that Joe Rogan signed this massive deal Mm -hmm. with Spotify, long-term deal with Spotify. Michelle Obama's got a deal with Spotify to do a podcast with them. So Spotify's approach to podcast audio has been, let's do Netflix for audio as we get into the podcast game. And as we know, Apple's had more of an open source approach. They don't invest a whole lot into the community, (laughs) but they at least give you the platform to be discovered. So what came up in the conversation was Joe Budden. And Joe Budden is a hip hop artist. He's been around a long time, but he's been in podcasting for a while now. And he was one of the original kind of test deals Hmm. for can a contracted podcast host make a company money? 
And clearly they proved the model one way or another. And now Joe is having a hard time getting as big of a contract as some of these other big creators who are coming onto the platform because he was first. He wasn't the biggest, right? I was still new on the app and so I didn't butt into the conversation, but I did DM one of the hosts afterwards. And I was like, you know, Joe's ultimate bargaining chip would be I don't need y'all. Right. I'm just going to go independent. You know, like if you're an NFL player or in sports or on a label, for a lot of these things, there isn't really an option for independent. For music, there is more. But in sport, if you're an NBA player, there is no independent platform. You got to play for a team in the league, period. <laughs> right. So you don't have another option, right? Your best option is to get the best contract you can in the league. And that's why you see guys holding out for the most money they can. But in content, you can do whatever you want. You can go make your own freaking money on the side. And so I, I made the point, like if Spotify is just going to sell ads against the content. They'll actually sell memberships is what they'll do, but also probably ads for some of their properties, depending on what their tests say. And so they're making a calculation on if we pay this person $25 million over five years, we can earn that much membership revenue in aggregate that this is going to make sense. Okay. So the benefit to the creator then is you can make $25 million today, but you have no long-term value, none. You've gotten all of your money up front and $25 million to be clear. It's a lot of money. And so maybe it doesn't matter. But if you're willing to put in a little bit of work and build your own brand around your independent content, number one, today you can negotiate for your own advertising contracts that mm -hmm. can make you a bunch of money. And number two, to your point, you can start thinking about what kind of product should I be creating longer term that's going to create value back to me, equity value back to me that continues growing over and over and over and over. And I think that's so much of the point that you're trying to make is like, stop thinking in your current business model. Think about how your current business model gets you to a better business model. Model later. Yeah. And so one of those, I tried to put a bunch of examples from that in the post, but the clearest example I found is Andrew Wilkinson, who started a design agency in British Columbia called MetaLab. And they did great design work for a long time. They've tried to build their own SaaS apps with varying levels of success. They got really famous as a design agency when they did the design for Slack. And they wrote a post about that. And so they built this wildly profitable agency. But businesses get valued in very different ways. And you would say that that's unfair, that software gets valued you know, far higher than services. It's just a fact of the business world. When Andrew realized this, he started using the profit from the agency to buy software and audience businesses. And so he is saying, I'm actually just going to buy a better business model. And I'm going to do it continually. And now his company, Tiny Capital, I think they own like over 20 businesses and they just keep buying more at a pretty crazy rate. They just purchased the website Nasty Gal from Sofia Amoruso. You know, and you're just like seeing them buy bigger and bigger stuff. They bought Creative Market like a couple months ago. They bought Dribble last year, you know, just like more and more things because he's saying like, okay, I see the resources that I have and I'm going to use that to trade up. It's almost like the, you know, the paperclip example of, I can't remember where I first heard this, but someone who was given a red paperclip and then went to somebody's house and traded it for something better and like keep trading that up as you go until you get like a car or something. I think he eventually ended up with a house somehow. It was the crazy story. But I think about that in business, where as you're learning these concrete skills, you're trading up and going higher and higher, where first you just try and trade time for money, and then you're trading all this effort and content for a brand, and then that attention. And then when you start directing that attention towards selling your own products, then it's pretty amazing. Another favorite example here recently is Ryan Reynolds. He's always done social media incredibly well and just the dry humor, and he's absolutely nailed it. But somewhere in there, he realized, wait, why am I doing content deals? You know, why am I doing endorsements for other people's brands and companies? Why don't I just buy the company or a portion of the company? And so that's what he did with Aviation Gin. And they just sold that for over $600 million. 
you know, and he's like, great, I'll do my own endorsement deals. He has another one. You know, like, would you expect Ryan Reynolds to get into running a cell phone provider? But that's totally what he's doing. And, and when he produces these ads for Mint Mobile, it's because he's like, the attention is worth more if I direct it at companies that I own. And so you're seeing that happen all over the place. And that's exactly what Mark Sisson, who started Mark's Daily Apple, you know, he built a wildly successful blog, one of the most popular in the paleo space. But it wasn't until he started selling his own products with Primal Kitchen that he built something that he could sell to craft for $200 million. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so let's run through these four principles real quick that were kind of your aggregated learnings from studying these examples. And I would just throw out there that like, if you're listening to this and you look at these examples yeah. and you have other conclusions, tweet at us. It's a conversation. It's not a freaking <laughs> academic study. I feel like people want to debate this kind of thing and be like, you're wrong on this point. It's like, okay, tell me how and what's your better thought then, you goofball? Right, I'm like three weeks into writing this article. Not we, We're not on our fourth peer-reviewed paper here. Okay, so rule number one. Build more than a personal brand. And you were just getting into Mark Sisson. And so he wrote this blog called Mark's Daily Apple. It was probably one of like three or yeah. four original paleo blogs in the early, early days. Really trusted, like people loved it. And he created this, this food line called Primal Kitchen. We've got a bunch of their like mayo in the fridge and all kinds of other stuff. And he ended up selling it. So when you looked at, at him or the Jordan line of shoes or Kylie Cosmetics, what was kind of this insight behind building more than a personal brand? Yeah, the thing is, like, I couldn't find examples that were still that single figurehead. So if you look to a Ramit Sethi or Marie Forleo or, or Michael Hyatt or, or a Nathan Berry, right? I couldn't find the examples where that had turned into a $100 million or billion dollar brand. And so that was interesting. I was like, why is there all this mid-level traction, but not the highest level? And then what I found is that people still use their name. But there was this difference between, say, Kylie Jenner, because we talked about her, and Kylie Cosmetics. Because some people were like, oh, it has Kylie in it, so it's still a personal brand. Or someone else brought up Ford and Dyson, right? Two iconic companies that have the name of the founder. But the thing is, they made it into a brand. It's not actually the same thing at all. We're not going around driving a Henry Ford. You know, We're driving a Ford. And that it happens to have the roots in the name of the founder, but it is a separate thing. And so the biggest realization is that you have to scale beyond what you can do as an individual. And you have to let go of that being tied to you. And you know, you're still the figurehead of it. But to reach that scale, it has to go beyond you. Now, a lot of people on Twitter were saying like, oh man, that resonates so much. I'm just getting started. Okay, I'm scrapping my personal brand. I'm going to go build this big iconic brand. And my first thought was, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's one, this wasn't written to you at this stage because a personal brand is one of the biggest assets you can build from say the zero to 100,000 or zero to 500,000 a year in revenue where that's your reputation. That's what you're going to use to get the manufacturing deals done. You know, like Mark Sisson's personal brand for built around Mark's Daily Apple is what I imagine like he used that when he went to manufacturers and said, hey, I need X amount of avocado mayonnaise made. And they're like, okay. And he's like, look, I have this following. I have this personal brand and he can place these orders. And so it really is a stair step kind of thing where you're not being like, oh, great. Okay. End result is this. Let's go all the way to step 100 and start there. It's like, let's work up to it over time with the knowledge that we're going to have to get there eventually. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I just can't 
overemphasize the amount of leverage you get from your name having a good reputation. You even see this with software startup founders or traditional kind of like VC-backed startup founders. They will build like the Twitter famous founders are the people I'm thinking about. Specifically, the, the human being that comes to mind is Austin Allred at the Code Education Bootcamp. Lambda School. Lambda School. He made himself famous on Twitter so that he could make his company more famous. Right. That was the route he took, right? And it's worked well for him. And that's because investors take meetings with individuals. They invest in an individual so that the brand can become a thing. And that's basically all you're doing is you're building the leverage. Like when Mark came out with products, the paleo community was skeptical AF about packaged goods right. of any kind, anything that's not just like a raw ingredient. It's like, not nah, not buying it. And he said, okay, well, it's not inherently that it's in a jar that makes it bad. It's the stuff that goes in the jar. So let's make the stuff that goes in the jar really good from step one, and then people will trust it enough to buy it. That's where the leverage was. There's no one in the paleo community buying a good thing from Kraft Foods. But you know what? Kraft got, they got a health foods brand now with a bunch of loyal customers. Right. So anyways, that's the value of the personal brand that you can then leverage into, hey, now buy this thing that I've made that doesn't have my name on it. Yep. Totally. Okay. Rule number two. Yeah. The next one in here is sell products, not attention. We touched on this a little bit. Basically what you're realizing is, I guess there's two aspects to it. One, the attention is fleeting, right? You're directing it towards something and it moves along, right? And there's not really residual value to that. You know, we're not continuing to build value in a brand or a product line or something like that that we own. So if you own the product, if you own the business, right? Anytime I write a blog post and direct that attention towards convert it, then like that's building long-term value. That customer is going to refer more. I get benefit from that for years to come. Whereas if I'm just like, oh, let me do a sponsored post. There's not a lot there. There are a couple caveats to this. One is if a sponsored opportunity levels up the profile of you as a creator, you should 100% take it, right? So there's a photographer that I think we're hoping to do a creator session with at some point in the future who's done all this work with Apple, right? When If you're a photographer and Apple approaches you and says, hey, let's do a collaboration, then you should be like, you know, Apple, I think that would do good things for my brand to be associated with you. And then there's other things on the flip side where, you know, a brand comes to you and you're like, ooh, no, 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 I don't know. Nope. I don't care how much you're going to pay me. Nope. And so you should be very aware of what it does for your brand to be associated with that company. And so it's not that you should never do sponsored deals or something like that, is that you should know it's probably not the highest leverage uh, activity and, you know, you need to know what effect it has on you. As a beginner or someone who's in those early stages, you should do the things that help you learn new skills and help you pay the bills, basically. So the wrong takeaway from this is where you come in and be like, oh, Nathan says I shouldn't do sponsored posts anymore. So uh, that's it for those. We're done. And instead, you know, you find out what's right for you and figure out the ways to do it. Because actually in doing sponsored posts and content, you could learn so much. We're talking about these skills that you could practice. So don't just look at it from, okay, this company is going to pay me $1,000 for the sponsored post and campaign. Go deeper and go, okay, what are their metrics? What are they optimizing for? And if you take notes and learn from that, then when you have your own product and you're going out to influencers to try to do these deals, you'll learn so much more. So think about how it can level up what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. Rule number three, drive higher customer value through recurring or repeat purchases. Before you get into this, Nathan, the first thing so many creators are going to think is, okay, so don't sell eBooks, start a membership site. Oh no. <laughs> no. 
No, all recurring revenue is not created equal. You know, I, I get creators regularly who will message me based on our experience at ConvertKit or my experience at Fizzle running recurring revenue businesses. And they'll say, hey, I want to create a membership site. Is that a good idea? And I consistently tell them like, do you have an editorial calendar that's going to allow you to produce both free content that drives your marketing and paid content that drives your membership on a monthly basis? Do you have the access to these contractors and this level of budget that's going to allow you to get that work done? And a lot of people like haven't thought through that. They just think that they can put a bunch of content behind a paywall and then people just keep paying for it over and over and over. And that is not true. The thing that drives paid content businesses that are recurring is new content. Whether you like it or not, right. people will go into the archives, sure, but they're not buying the archives. They're buying the new thing. They're buying the promise of everything you're going to make in the future. And that's why they keep paying you. That's not what we're talking about here. There is value in that sometimes. And you see like Chase Jarvis and Creative Live would be an example of he went all in and they, he built a company mm -hmm. around a membership site, basically, and then turned it into this big education platform. That is possible. But we're not talking about building just like a little teachable or thinkific membership site here. So what were you talking about? Yeah, so it's really this realization and looking for trends of what does everyone have in common? You know, I was finding a lot of health, wellness, beauty products and a lot of software. And so I was like, what? Why? Oh, and I was finding a lot of alcohol. <laughs> those were things that kept coming up. And what I realized is that all of those were products that if you love that brand, you could keep going back to, right? You didn't come across Primal Kitchen and go, that was cool. Had one jar of mayonnaise that's got me set for the next couple of years. We're good to go. You went, no, if that is a product that we love, it's a consumable and we go through it on a regular basis. We keep paying for the same thing over and over again. Here's the other this insight on great section of the Elon Musk biography by Ashley Vance. He talks about Elon Musk intentionally after college or somewhere in there, writing down first principles for what are the things that will impact humans over a long period of time. And what that comes down to is problems that affect everyone or desires that everyone has. And you know what's true about beauty products and alcohol products? Everyone wants to get drunk and numb themselves every once in a while. And everyone wants to look pretty. Guys, girls, and everything in between. Right. And so insight there is both. It's both that people will come back to them once they're loyal and that it serves a base need or want that we have. It's a first principle need or want of humanity. And I think that's why you can see these big valuations in some of these spaces and not in others sometimes. Everyone does not want to read about philosophy or have like a philosophy book club membership or some shit like that. That's a small niche little community, but everyone wants to look good every day, right? even if they won't admit it to themselves. And so th I think that's one of the things is you open up this massive market size when you go into something like alcohol or beauty. Yeah. And so two examples that I have in the post, one is uh, Katie and Seth Spears who built wellnessmama.com and they built it to massive revenue. You know, it's a fantastic blog. And they went, oh, well, when we go into personal care products with their new company wellness, then they're selling something that they run out of on a regular basis. We just ran out of our toothpaste from them. So it's like, guess what? We're buying more. Another example would be Justin Jackson, who has been a ConvertKit customer since almost the beginning and in building an audience and all of that, right? He's selling books and courses and he's building a good living, but it's when he built Transistor, which is this company for podcast hosting, that then people are paying for it every single month. It's just going to have this long-term value. And that's why these types of companies have so much higher of a multiple on revenue. Yep. Okay. Last one. You kind of just touched on it, but basically choose a better business model. I guess one of the things I'd ask you here is if number three was drive higher customer value through recurring revenue or repeat purchases, mm -hmm. what's different about this fourth rule of choosing a better business model? 
Yeah, this was an insight and I actually rewrote this in a few different times and, and I'm still not certain that it's the way that I want to phrase it. I couldn't find very many examples, if any, of people selling content and information in this traditional info product and course space. I found a lot of people who started there and pivoted out of it. Or for example, people who started in WordPress plugins and then pivoted into SaaS. But I couldn't find the ones built on WordPress that scaled. It was really when they went into a more traditional environment or product that it really started to get traction. And one thing that I realized and came to is actually in reading Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, where he talks about why companies are valued a certain way. Because everyone's like, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, LinkedIn in the early days was valued something ridiculous when they had no money. Facebook, same thing, all this stuff. And everyone talks about how absurd that is. And he goes, it's not absurd. They're being valued on a forecast of future cash flows. And so people are saying like, yeah, they lose tons of money right now. That's not at all what it's about. We were saying if this plan works out even in their worst projection, then they're going to be generating so much cash that the value of the company is the same. You see that play out with Facebook and, and Instagram and all these things. And so really looking and saying, okay, what is the version of this business model or the version of this attention from the audience that drives incredible long-term cash flow? Yeah. Okay. So this one really gets at, I mean, it's really playing to capital. Yeah. It's playing by the rules of capital and any valuation for any of anyone that didn't study finance, any valuation of a company is just the net present value of all future cash flow. Mm-hmm. All you're looking at is you're basically reducing the value by the future rate of inflation to the present, essentially. Yep. And so when you've got massive audience growth, now your projections can range widely, right? And that's why sometimes with venture capital, you'll see ballooning valuations that then come back down to reality as companies settle into a more normal operating pace. But if you're Instagram years ago and you have however many millions of users, there are so many business models that can create revenue where almost any way you model it, as long as they put a business model in place, the net present value of all that future cash is very large. So this gets into a question from Teddy about ConvertKit and kind of how we're using the same kind of strategy. And this last point gets at it where he asked about our free plan and how that fits into this like long-term growth trajectory of basically taking your leverage, Nathan, and turning it into a billion dollar business, which is basically the path that we're on with our 2025 vision of getting to $100 million in annual revenue. What the free plan does is normally venture-backed companies start free and then they go, they figure out their business model or a lot of people, that's one path that a lot of people take, but they have money invested so they can do that. You know, they can take their time on where the money comes from, from their customers. We were bootstrapped. There was no outside funding. There was no one to fund the free thing. Right. So we went paid first and that's a much steeper battle because you got to sell a product for value right up front to as many people as you can to get the company on its feet. So it's a hard path, but we got there and we had 30,000 paying customers when we launched the free plan. And so all we were doing was reverse engineering what other companies do where they go free and then paid. We're saying we want to increase the number of people coming into the top because the value to the company, we're now the investors, right? Saying what's the net present value of all the money we can earn from these people over a long period of time. And the net present value is high because once you get someone into the platform and using it, Mini Cooper has this incredible story. They have like I don't know the exact conversion rate, but the conversion rate for a person who gets into a Mini Cooper and drives it versus someone who does not is astronomically higher. And it's the same principle. Once you're in there and you see how it works and you get used to it, you're way more likely to pay us 
at some point in the future. Doesn't matter if you're ready today with your business, you already have familiarity with us and it gives us a chance to, in a way, like infiltrate your mind with our brand, with this thinking about why the future belongs to creators. And so you have an affinity to us that makes you more likely to pay us money eventually. We're leveraging these same principles by launching that free plan so that it drives future growth for us. Yep. That's exactly it. And that's just us training up, continuing to level up our business model. Because one of the biggest expenses in software is your marketing cost, your customer acquisition. And so basically what we're doing is saying, hmm, I wonder if with a free plan, we can use that to be our customer acquisition cost. Then, and actually in this case, we're not going, so we don't spend on marketing. Then we're we're going, so we can do that and spend on marketing and get even higher returns. So it's just trading up for a higher quality business model. Yep. Love it. Doom, dick, doom, 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 dick, doom, 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 creator of the day. All right. I don't have a creator necessarily. I have a resource, but it's made by a creator. So I have a creator and a resource. The book is Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday. You know, this is one of those books that came out in 2017. I don't think I've heard very many people talk about it at all. And I will be completely honest. Ryan sent me a copy years ago. I did not read it. It's hard when you get sent so many books. (laughs) Yeah. But recently I picked it up and I just finished reading it and it is really good. And it's all about, you know, Ryan has worked in a few of his favorite incredible authors or artists like Iron Maiden or, you know, any of these who continue to sell products over and over again and decades after coming out, continue to drive long-term value and make sales. And it's really solid. The principles that he goes through in the book, you know, I took a lot of notes. I'm thinking in that mindset a lot right now as I'm working on my next book and trying to make something not just that has a big spike up front, but that actually can have a huge impact long-term and continue to sell. You know, I think Ryan does a great job of breaking it down and I would highly recommend perennial seller. Love it. I also don't have creators of the day, but I do have two resources. So deal with it. (laughs) I say that lovingly. My first resource is Google just announced today that they have officially offset all carbon that they have ever released through their business operations. I want to be clear. So number one, climate change is on my mind. Climate change is real. First of all, secondly, it's on my mind because I am sitting in a living hellscape of what it will look like if we don't get more serious about this. And so I have two things related to that today. One is Google just took like serious action and put their money where their mouth is on becoming entirely fueled by non-carbon based energy by 2030. That is incredibly inspiring to me. In addition to offsetting all of their carbon output up to this point, including before they had this goal of being carbon neutral. So offsets is completely different from running on renewable energy. Offsets means that you still release carbon into the air, but you invest in projects that capture carbon as well. That might be carbon capture technology, reforestation, projects like this. Anyways, they put out a great white paper that really details what their plan is over the next 10 years. I'm just really enthusiastic about this. Like I've seen some serious actions taken by big, I have zero faith in big companies, zero faith. I am a capitalist who does not believe that big companies, I I think big companies are mostly a perversion of capitalism. They're not the truest expression of it. However, because that's how we are today, we need them to take action. Uber is advertising all over the city of Portland against racism. I find that very inspiring, even though I have a lot of problems with how they operate. And Google announcing this is another big win. Second thing to bring it down to what you can do on a personal level, projectren.com awesome way to calculate your personal and family carbon footprint through your lifestyle. 
essentially they give you a survey. You talk about what your energy bill is every month, whether you pay for renewable energy, how much you fly, how much you drive. And they say, here's how many tons of carbon you release every year. And then they invest in projects that are carbon offsetting. So again, it's not as good as living carbon free, but it's the next best thing. My family and I offset our carbon offsets every month. We live in a decent sized house. We do pay for renewable energy on our energy bill and we do drive a hybrid, but like we live a pretty normal life. We try and invest where we care. It costs us 70 bucks to offset our carbon footprint every month. So it's not crazy expensive. Well, and that includes your air travel as well. Yeah. Which I know you calculated that in, right? Because trips back across the country, that can add up as well. So if someone had fewer flights, that would decrease it. Yep. Anyways, projectrend.com, cool to check out. If you care about solving climate change on a personal level, that's one thing you can do right now. And uh, I think we should all care about it. Okay. Good stuff. There's your, if you think that's a political message, I'm sorry, but there's your political message of the day. I think uh, our group is pretty good about not considering those things political message or dealing with it or unsubscribing. Who knows? All right, y'all. We love you. Thanks for participating in the chat today. This is a good one. As we continue to write articles on deep thoughts like this, we'll try and do podcast versions of them because I think it adds a little bit of color commentary there. Yep, for sure. All right. I'll see you all on Friday. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. To start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time.